podcast producer Trent here. Today's episode, we're talking to author Mark O'Connell, and we have some poetry from Arlo Parks. Uh, Patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles is where you can go to support us. You can drop a tip in the tip jar, which is still running at uh, CosmicShambles.com slash stay at home. So the question is, though, what is that syndrome called where you hear music and you it's not Cotard's, it's another one. So um, anyway, if you know, can you tell I us? Know, I wish I knew. Oh, well, good morning. Welcome to uh, Shambles Stay at Home Festival. We're just dealing with different kind of uh, interesting, uh, um, I suppose, um, yeah, n- neuroscientific and uh, psychological uh, intrigues. Um, Cotard's is, I think, where, or Cotard's, I'm not sure which is, that, that's the one where you actually believe that you're dead. Uh, but you, it, that, that's that's a quite intriguing one. But um, anyway, um, this is the penultimate show. Um, with, so we're being a little bit more relaxed. Josie, only a moment ago, was debating whether to do the show in her vest, and we said, not yet. Not good no, enough. Not, not good enough. No. Um, and uh, so how are you this morning, Josie? I am absolutely fine. Um, my uh, I uh, played some dinosaur puzzles this morning, and I also played a game where you put some boots on some monsters. So I've been really, really, and that was just me. Brilliant! You pulled back. You revealed uh, it was which of course. Uh, mine's fine. Mine, mine has been one of those days. I've just been wasting time doing bits and pieces and watching a little bit of the old dark house. And uh, uh, my son's uh, homeschooling involves a sketch with Stephen Fry, Ronnie Corbett, and Ronnie Barker this morning. So of course, oh, I, I was contextualising it for him. Father, I don't need this contextualised. No, but let me tell you about the history of comedy. Father, I really don't need this. This now, is not that was the week it was. Now, last the nineteen sixty eight. I think Humphrey Carpenter's take on that was best. Anyway, welcome to the show. Uh, this is the penultimate daily show. Um, I'll quickly tell you who we've got coming up tomorrow. Tomorrow we thought we'd have some of our favourite guests back. So uh, amongst others, we have uh, David McColman, and he is singing a very, very good song as well. Uh, we have Natalie Haynes, and we have our first guest, and he was also our middle guest, and he is now our final guest. Uh, Mark Gatiss is going to be joining us uh, as well. And uh, we also have Deanna Roger as well, who's going to be um, also singing some songs for us and doing some music stuff. Um, so, uh, tell you a couple of things. One is we've got a new Patreon funding thing, which we just started on Thursday, and uh, that's all gone up. And it's just so because we do genuinely we don't we don't like the idea of things not being accessible. We've tried to make things free to access as much as possible, but because. Um, Basically, there is no live gigging, there is no touring, and all of that is, is gone for a moment. We are just changing the model a little bit, and there are going to be some shows now which are going to be Patreon only. We are still going to be making free-to-access shows. There is still, still going to be the Sunday Science Q&A and uh, Quarantine Comedy Club, and at least one other thing as well. But some of the other stuff we are going to do uh, for Patreon only. So if you can support us with that, that is fantastic. Um, Josie, you're doing your show tonight? My stomach just gurgled. Yes, I am. 8.30 till 10.30pm on twitch.tv slash Josie underscore long or on this very link. Um, yeah, and that is uh, free to access. Free and that to access. Is so it's like such a secret lion in the background, isn't it? Free to access. Yeah. 
but will it ever be free in-game purchases um, <laughs> but yeah I do um I do my stand-up show in two halves we do a little interval in the middle and I basically perform it as live but try to perform it for this not just me doing it and hopefully it's been quite fun I've been really enjoying doing it and yeah good, good. I'm going to keep doing it for the time being but I suppose I suppose by the end of June I'm going to have to start writing a new show somehow but I don't know how to do that without the stage. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a real, I, I find it. I've, I kind of get very nervous. Yesterday we recorded uh, the first monkey cage back and, and it how was, it was good. I can't, I don't know if I'm allowed to say who was on yet, but we have one of my favorite all time uh, comedy actors on. I mean, like really, really, I mean, in fact, we have two of them. We have two people who in terms of my childhood and growing up were two of the most influential uh, comedy things ever. This is so um, interesting because it I'm, really is so cool as well. It's, who are they? Uh, I know you'll find out. You'll find, I don't know when we're allowed to say who it is. I think we probably are allowed to say now, but I'm not going to anyway, because sure. I like to be enigmatic. Mate, um, you didn't say who won celebrity pointless for nearly two years. I'm not going to get it out of you was it who won oh yeah it was me it was me <laughs> i've done that as my show is and tell is that show that has to be tomorrow's show and tell i've never shown my uh celebrity pointless award my my, my great yeah. trophy um, uh, listen um tomorrow well, uh what time is the show is it 10 or 10 10 o'clock tomorrow because we've got four guests and uh we'll be doing our final show and tells so there will be show and tells next week as well have you got oh i should quickly mention this the albert hall, hall gig, gig as well uh don't forget that again it is free on uh saturday night it's the it's sunday night apologies uh sunday night it's the gig that we would have been doing at the albert hall but now with even more guests so we've got uh kobe smulders from uh who's an agent of shield as you may well know from the marvel avengers movies and uh how i met your mother and we have chris hadfield and we have lem cisse and we have helen church we have grace petrie we have josie long and uh, we have british sea power and we have loads of other things as well my show and tell today by the way is that well i've, I've almost I, I was gonna do two but this is just because uh, florian schneider died last week uh, from Kraftwerk, yeah. who's such an incredible band and uh this uh, is a film which I, i'm always surprised at how few people have seen this um and it's called radio on i'm sure i probably mentioned it before and uh uh-huh. it was Late seventies, it came out. Chris Pettit, and and it's just this. It's a really great British road movie. Another monoc- comedian was talking about this yesterday on Twitter. Somebody else was saying they absolutely love it because it's who was talking about it's, it. It's, it's mainly so just a car. It's a man driving while you hear the entirety of songs by people like Kraftwerk, yeah. and uh, and it's beautifully shot. And there's some if people who are JG Ballard fans as well will love the fact there's beautiful shots on the West Way as well. Uh, and it's an incredible. There's the the, the uh, kind of opening scene. There's a, a beautiful, uh, just very lengthy panning shot with the uh, David Bowie's version of Heroes, which um, is half English and half German version as well. But it is a really incredible film, and, it, and it's a beautiful use of of craft work. Um, so Radio One is my um, show and tell because, and, and it is. <laughs> Alistair Green. Do you know Alistair Green? Yeah, he's hilarious. If you haven't watched Alistair Green's uh, monologues that he makes in his house, uh, uh, normally on a daily basis, they are absolutely brilliant. He is one of the funniest men in the world. Funny. Well, he, the other day, was recommending the very same film, so you should get in contact and have a nice long chat about it. The absolute dream. Oh, he'll just lampoon me with a monologue about a middle-aged idiot going on about late 1970s new wave British road movies yet again. (laughs) Have you got a show and tell today, Josie? I do. So, Johnny brought... um, Johnny 
when me and Johnny didn't have, he was like really have any stuff and I was like wow how enigmatic but it turned out he had lots of stuff hidden at various friends attics and so gradually it would come back bag by bag and there was a bag of unsorted stuff and he sorted it and most of it was just old stuff he didn't want and stuff like that but we kept this which is I'd never seen it before and I didn't realize it existed and I think it's the bleakest book I've ever seen one is fun yeah one is fun then it's the number one bestseller which is sad but it's it's all about how to cook yourself I mean I guess it's not bleak I think it's beautiful it's lovely I shouldn't say it's bleak it's too easy a laugh to say it's bleak but you can make yourself cheese sage and onion sausages florentine eggs chicory orange and walnut salad so it's all about treating yourself right even if it's just you so I suppose but there not- is so I know what you mean. There's something I think it's because of the use of the word fun. Yeah. In the same way that a fun pub fun had no pub had no fun in it. The idea that saying it's all right. What's what's fun? It's fun, isn't it? I mean, we're having fun, aren't I? Yeah, <laughs> that, I think that's it. If if it was just cooking for yourself, brilliant. It's fun. I'm I'm, yeah. I'm bloody if glad I'm like, a no. Treat yourself. Yeah, you'd be like, yeah, I will treat myself, but that is exactly that is like, no, no, it's not just that we're having fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, this flyer was in the middle of it. Elton John tribute show, Crocodile Mock, at the Harlow Playhouse, Saturday, sixth of June, twenty fifteen. If anyone's got a time machine, that is brilliant. Has he got a beard? No, he hasn't. Huh. So that's that sorted. Good. I was just thinking he might be one of those George Michael tribute acts who always goes on. I can do him as well. But that means you've got to keep the beard. I know it's a problem. Anyway, so that is, uh, I'm looking forward to that. When When is that again? When? What day are we going to see Crocodile Mock? Um, it's at the Harlow Playhouse, Saturday, 6th of June, 2015. Brilliant. See you there. See you, everyone. And we'll be putting up the full details of that gig. So uh, if you all want to meet up after this, uh, we will do that using some kind of wormhole uh, or quantum tunneling or, or something like that. Anyway, um, we're going to uh, now have uh, our guest <laughs> of the day, um, who unfortunately it turns out yet again, Josie is allergic to it, seems. She sneezed instantly. Also, I'm sorry. I got so excited for your show and tell to tell you that Alistair Green also liked it. It's because before we started the show, when I said, oh, it must feel sad that others of your friends don't know it. And then it just seems so perfect. But that was before the show. Well, I was saying that, yeah, when, when, saying I, that, yeah, when, when I talk with Brian Cox, just everything that I bring up, he goes, no one's heard of it. No one knows what it is because it's not part of the Marvel or Star Wars franchise. Basic. <sighs> now, Mark O'Connell, who is our guest today, whose who's first book was about uh, transhumanism, which is uh, a fascinating era, but we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about his uh, latest book, which is Notes from an Apocalypse. And uh, this is... Hi, well, Mark, hello, Welcome first to the show. Hi, Robin. Hi, Josie. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm all right. Now we were saying. Now we were saying beforehand that, of course, every review has talked about the the, the timing of this this book coming out. But it's not. I mean, the, what you're actually looking at is a very kind of. It, it's a lot of different versions of ideas of people how they are thinking ahead, isn't it? To actually some form of uh, possible human apocalypse. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the premise of the book is that. Well, it sort of begins out of my own sort of formless anxiety about you know, climate change and the sort of sense of political fragmentation and everything just going to sort of chaos. And uh, I then sort of channel that into a bit of an unhealthy obsession with like doomsday preppers, people who are uh, convinced that some sort of 
uh, you know, civilizational collapse event is on the way and are preparing for it by, uh, you know, digging bunkers and stockpiling tinned goods and all that kind of stuff. And then it sort of uh, opens out onto, you know, people building luxury bunkers for the super rich, uh, you know, people like Peter Thiel buying land in New Zealand. So it's an examination of like the various ways in which people are preparing for the end of the world as a sort of way for me to metabolize my own anxieties and talk about things that interest and terrify me. So Peter Till, that's very interesting because I, I think, is it right New Zealand has had to change some of its laws because it said laws because it said too many people since 2016 have been going, our culture's gone absolutely terrible. We must immediately buy property in New Zealand. This is the place, it's become this kind of Im imagined place where this is to escape from the rest of the madness. And especially when you see their, their prime minister, you go, oh, you know, whenever in New Zealand you go, oh, this seems to offer so much political hope as well. Yeah, I mean, they have, they've changed the laws since uh, since I was sort of even writing about it. But even at the time, Peter Thiel had to go through some fairly kind of um, had to go through some loopholes to to buy that land in the first place. He had to become a citizen because the laws were already quite tight around foreign ownership of land. But I think since then, they've completely clamped down on <sighs> foreigners buying land. And That's so what Britain could be like, but it never will. Britain will always just be a money laundering operation. <laughs> right. I'm uh, do you find that I find it so interesting with things like this and it does um it links back to me a little bit to when people are pregnant they often prepare for the birth but they don't prepare for parenthood and similarly with this I feel like people's attitudes and maybe it's a result of the last sort of 20 years of specific types of dystopia and doomsday fiction but I feel like people are so prepared for the event and not prepared for life you know, so they're not prepared for things to get difficult and stay difficult. They're prepared for like the weird one night battle with zombies and it'll be like a film. And once you've <laughs> won that, I don't want to plan ahead. And so it's like, it's this strange sort of prepper mentality is not necessarily a long term mentality. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like in some ways it's a way of like avoiding. Yes, truly. Everyday life. Yeah, I think that's true. And like one of the weird things about the, I mean, I spent two years, two and a half years writing this book. And I, like, like I said, I began out of kind of similar anxieties to the anxieties of the people I'm writing about. Um, you know, my politics are very different, obviously, but, you know, I, I, I get where they're coming from in terms of like the sense of the fragility of the world and all that kind of stuff. But I never did any actual preparing. I mean, the, the amount of time I spent like watching YouTube videos of, guys talking through their like bug out bags and sort of their various preparations and thinking through the scenarios of things might that might happen like the various ways in which civilization might be fragile and so on none of that actually amounted to me doing anything none of that amounted to me actually even going so far as to like have a little bag under the bed or whatever so i'm just i'm not wired in that way but i think you're right in, in saying that like there is something about it that is like it's uh, it's as much about fantasy as it is about fear, I think, because the fantasy that so many of these people have of the apocalypse, quote unquote, is one of like, OK, there's a catastrophe, like the government collapses, you're on your own. And all of a sudden, life becomes like at once very chaotic, but also very simplified. And it's just you against the elements. It's you against the sort of savage hordes outside and it becomes this kind of like 
you know, masculinity fulfillment kind of fantasy in a way. Uh, and that's part of what I found really interesting about it. So I think, like, even though my fears in some ways coincide with those of these people, it never amounted to actually preparing. Because I'm not like, I think that the thing that I did was write the book, actually. The thing that I did with my anxieties was write the book. And as I say in the book, like, if there is some kind of, you know, apocalyptic event, I would hope to be in the first wave of death. That's my, that's my contingency plan. Just yeah. go down first. Honestly, because this is the other thing. You put all your energy into surviving the first bit and then it will be much harder afterwards. Yeah. Just, yeah. A bit like childbirth and parenting, actually. Yes, truly. The first bit is just like a strength thing and then the rest is endurance, which is unbearable. Yeah, yeah. There's one thing that prepares you for the apocalypse. Maybe it is parenting. Constantly woken. Of childbirth, but yeah. Full alert. When the baby can't can move things but can't understand consequences, you've basically got death around the corner at any stage. Surrounded yeah. by savages. Yeah. <laughs> Did you find that, find that for quite a few of these people, it does become a secular religion? It does become, this is, you know, in, in the same way when you think of some of those cults that are waiting for the mothership or you think of those that are waiting for what might be seen as the the the, the, the rapture, that this idea of some form of human apocalypse and, and to focus this entire focus on how will the community work and how will you be, you know, the, 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 the emperor of that community and all of those different things, that that does in some way fulfil some kind of bleak religious need as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, in a similar way to my first book, I suppose, I look at, you know, transhumanism in the first book, and one of my sort of readings of that whole sort of desire to, you know, bring about eternal life through technology is that it's really a a kind of a diversion of the religious urge into uh, technology and science. And I think with the, you know, sort of notion of the secular apocalypse that I'm looking at in this book, there are kind of religious... uh, you know, it's it's an essentially religious form. And so if you are convinced that some kind of apocalyptic event is going to happen, it's in in a way, it's a way of containing and give like giving coherence to a lot of very incoherent and sort of like vague anxiety about the fragility of the world and the sense of like chaos outside. I mean, one of the things about the apocalypse as an idea, like a mythology for want of a better term is that like if you look at the history of sort of moments of apocalyptic fervor or whatever it always seems to uh, crop up at times of like particular upheaval and at times when like society seems to be going through chaotic changes and nobody knows what the future is going to bring and everything seems to be changing really really fast i mean if you look at um the book of revelation probably tells you a lot more about the time it was written and the sort of like religious persecutions and sort of wars and like upheavals of empires and so on that were going on at the time than it does about any kind of, you know, possible future or whatever. And I think similarly now, the apocalypse is a way, it's almost like in a way that's sort of actually similar to conspiracy theories theories in a sense, that like the world is like vastly complicated. No one knows what they're doing. The people who control the levers of power are barely barely cognizant of what they're doing they don't really have much of a plan they're just kind of out for themselves nothing makes much sense you know whereas if you've got conspiracy theory it sort of simplifies everything Mm -hmm. Um, 
And similarly with the apocalypse, it sort of focuses everything into this one sort of narrative endpoint. You know, the, like the future is all of a sudden clear and certain. And I think there's an appeal to that that is quite similar to the appeal of, you know, the religious idea of the apocalypse, which is that, okay, everything, you know, humanity has got out of control. Everything's gone completely chaotic. God is going to step in. Jesus is going to return. Um, everything's going to make sense. It's all going to get wrapped up. Yeah. Well, Josie, I'll tell you what, we'll come back to this because we, uh, we're, um, we're going to come, we're going to take a brief break from the apocalypse um, and have uh, the first. If only, if only we could, Robin. <laughs> well, it's, it's all very parochial because I was saying yesterday the monkey cage we were doing was all about how the universe is going to end. So this feels like a very relaxed chat. Um, <laughs> this is the, no big rip or vacuum decay that's about to suddenly take us by surprise. Uh, so um, we're joined by a uh, singer, songwriter, and poet, and uh, she's recorded two. Uh, that, sorry, had recorded two poems, and it is Arlo Parks. So let's have a look at the work of Arlo Parks. Hi everyone, my name is Arlo Parks. I'm a 19 year old artist from West London. Uh, my music is a blend of soul, R&B, rock, indie and pop. A lot of the songs that I write come from poetry. Poetry is my first love. I've been writing poems and writing stories since I was very, very young. The first poem I wanna read for you guys is a poem called Brilliant Corners. I feel like in this time, there's a sense of nostalgia. There's a sense of reflecting on people that were once very important to you and reflecting on past loves. There is a brilliant corner in me that I have saved for you. That is to say, I have embroidered every conversation we have ever had, every brutal confession of comfort with dark purple silk. You came to me as a string of pearls around the neck of a long winter, sweet-tempered and firm. I remember every one of your habits by accident, the smashed tumbler of vodka, the David Lynch marathons, the snatched lunches on your stepbrother's patio, attention given like grains of fried rice, hot bolts of longing splitting every moment without you into thirds. We danced to cat power, and you notice that my face looks crushed when I'm afraid, and I am afraid of how bright and lucky and quick you are to make me want you. That was a short poem. It's an exploration of, of love and of feeling helpless within a relationship um, and feeling like you want someone more than perhaps they want you. The next poem um, is untitled as of yet and it's an exploration of wanting to be in love desiring to be desired i want a love terrible soft throat dripping stupid with hurt at little betrayals eyes thick with the hair of a boy private and strong face cupped in new palms barely light red wine and enchiladas i want to hate with the tight salted features in Elliot Smith of someone whose world left quietly in the middle of the night. I want to be your dog, stare too hard, use my forearms as a shield, collapse the space between us in one fried heartbeat. I want to be loved, be drawn up helpless and loose against a chest, heaving with orange peel and specific size. I want to cry, lose my mind in a fragment of absence. 
struggle to forget even when I try, steal away to the water in golden weather. That was a poem about love and about wanting to feel safe in the arms of a person. The last poem that I'm going to read is a poem that inspired my single Eugene, which is a song that explores the complicated relationship between you and a friend. And it, it explores a specific kind of hurt that I think many people may have experienced. And it's called Eugene. Eugene keeps stars and split fruit between his ribs. An almost angel boy smoking loose blems, blending, worming his way into your heart. And what a heart, so soft that sometimes it hurts to beat. We've known each other for ages. The first time I came over, you grated ginger into a bowl, listened to my oldest pain, spoke like sugar water. I knew I loved you then. I'm still not quite sure in what way. Eugene bloomed like a complicated flower or an elegant lie. You borrowed his habit of effortless bruising and horrible charm. Everybody says you look beautiful together. His hair smells of boiled blood and burnt peaches. I wear jealousy so unglamorously. It upsets my stomach. I see double, forgetting myself in the night. I was everything you needed for a minute. We would drive for miles in search of clean air. Our eyes were blind to the future, your future, with him. Who could have predicted the agony? That was a poem called Eugene that inspired my work. I think I wrote it in the middle of the night and it was dedicated to a friend of mine who was going through a difficult situation with somebody that they loved and the lines were beginning to blur and it was becoming painful. Poetry is very important to me and I'm glad that I get to share it with you guys. Hello, welcome back. There we go. That was uh, Arlo Parks, and uh, she has a new single single out as well. I think it's actually out this week, and it's called Black Dog. And you can go to arloparksofficial.com to find out more of that and probably download it there as well. Josie, I rudely uh, stopped you. Uh, I allowed poetry to get in the way of your question. Now, now, if you think I can remember that question from near five minutes ago, you are sadly mistaken, Robert. That's how long we haven't worked together. I totally forgot about your flippity gibbet brain. Um, well, this is, but what I find interesting is about those those different narratives that we have. Like I was thinking when I was growing up, my fears were initially rabies and some form of dystopia because in the seventies we were brought up on a lot of strange, different dystopian visions. Then throughout the eighties, it was of course nuclear war. A nuclear war yes. did genuinely feel imminent at the time, and we would have these. You know, it, it felt, and then there's a kind of a, a shaded area where it goes into hiv and aids and and so it's interesting there's very few periods it seems of uh of, of humanity where you actually have a period where you go i can't see an immediate plague or end time i think there are little patches in 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 the 90s and a little bit in the first decade of this century but generally there's always there is something uh, and and that's I think one of the difficulties sometimes in the way people deal with it is people can sometimes be dismissive of say something like climate change they go oh there's always something around the corner isn't there yeah and that's the hard thing isn't it to sometimes face up to going this is something that needs direct tackling this is something that is worldwide 
this is some and, and how do we how do we fight against the balance between sometimes what can be seen as a, a an overly zealous fear of an apocalypse and a rational reaction to what could be a major problem for civilization good question uh, good question um long wasn't it that's right i'm a useful actor to do it but yeah i mean you're like you are absolutely right in saying that there's like you know <laughs> there's always something like there's always some reason to believe that the end is nigh um and it, like that's part of i think what i'm trying to do in the book is like you know try to be uh serious and engaged with like the specific sort of apocalyptic energy of our time and i'm writing like mostly about climate change because i wrote it in an entire other historical era at this point um but like to be sort of aware and engaged with that while also keeping like one eye on the fact that uh it's always the end of the world like there's always as you say there's always something there's like it's always been the apocalypse um or at least it's something that like drops up cyclically or whatever um and to try and not have that knowledge sort of leads you into complacency or a sense that like well you know it's always been the end of the world but it's not the end of the world you know we'll get through this just like we, everything else because the point is i suppose that like although it's never quote unquote the apocalypse in terms of like an entire existential wipeout of the human race the whole idea of the apocalypse to me is that it's like it's always happening to someone somewhere mm. i always think about that with the walking dead where it's like imagine if you weren't safe and resources were low and it's right. like so many people don't have to imagine that like it's so arrogant as a fantasy like you know when we talk about like preppers about like preppers or you know uh, people sort of buying apocalypse timeshare and like luxury bunkers or whatever uh, and even like when people like me think about the apocalypse actually what we're thinking about is a situation which is sort of equal to how so many of the people in the world already live like one of the things that i started to think about when i was writing the book was that like here i am this like very privileged kind of uh, person in a in a you know a pretty wealthy western country and even as i'm walking around thinking about the apocalypse i'm encountering you know dublin has a pretty serious housing crisis and a lot of homelessness and i'm just walking past people for whom that apocalyptic idea of like the collapse of civilization is already a reality like that's the world they live in so if i were to talk to you know someone like that about the idea of the collapse of civilization they'd probably be like what are you talking about what do you mean like what do you mean by the collapse of civilization is it this like is it like that's what they're living you know um so i think it's like important to bear all that in mind while also being serious about the like the threat that something like climate change presents what for you were the the most revelatory you're, you're traveling the world you're seeing these different forms and ideas and philosophies of kind of you know of, of communes etc were, were there certain moments that you felt particularly unprepared for um 
Do you mean like scenarios of the end of the world or things that I encountered in an immediate... The actual, the, the people themselves and their philosophies, were, uh, 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 as you mentioned before, I mean, for some people, it's not so much about survival as maintaining a level of... Uh, feels Again, you mentioned zombie movies. It feels like Land of the Dead, where we have Dennis Hopper very much living the kind of uh, second Bush America uh, in what, while everyone else uh, are his kind of slaves and servants while the zombie apocalypse goes around him. So I just wondered if there were any people you thought, wow, this is your drive is a uh you know it's is a very strange and peculiar drive yeah so like there's a couple instances of that i suppose i mean the bit yeah, i suppose i mean the bit the thing that sort of is uh, is sort of sticking out for me now is like uh i went to south dakota to um this very sort of remote rural area in south dakota with this guy named robert Vecino, who's like i suppose you describe him as like an apocalyptic entrepreneur uh, <laughs> who specializes in like, um, yeah, luxury survival facilities for uh, people, sort of generally sort of wealthy Americans who are concerned about the collapse of civilization and concerned about like, you know, civil unrest as a result of, you know, an asteroid strike or a nuclear change or even something like we're going through right now. So I went to South Dakota where he had bought this like huge, uh, dairy farm essentially that was like a former uh, military munitions facility where there were all these like um, massive sort of overground bunkers made from uh, concrete and, and reinforced steel uh, and it was built uh, during the second world war to house bombs um, and he was in the process of turning this into like what he described as uh, a survival community for a group of like maybe 500 like-minded families or individuals and this was the, the, the place is called X Point. And the idea is that this is like the, the place from which civilization will be rebuilt after a civilizational collapse. And so he was basically pitching this as kind of like apocalyptic timeshare, basically. You buy into this scheme, you pay him like 35 grand or whatever, and you do up your bunker to your own specifications. Uh, and when the shit hits the fan, as the preppers are used, you then, like, you get in your, like, heavily armored SUV or your private jet or you get on a commercial flight or whatever, and you get yourself to South Dakota and you sort of retreat to this area. And there's, like, the plan is that there will be private army patrolling the perimeter of this place. So in a way, it's like an actual private sort of libertarian state that he is attempting to build, uh, controlled by his own sort of private corporation or whatever. Um, and his like vision of the end of the I mean, it was a really interesting experience meeting him and like spending time with him because he had my number immediately. He knew that I was like this lefty socialist European uh, and he knew what I wanted from him. Like he knew what I thought of him immediately. And he's a very smart guy. He's a salesman. Like, like so many of the people I write about, he's a brilliant salesman um, and literally like a former advertising executive. Mm. Uh, made his career in like developing the field of large inflatable advertising which is like these huge glow up things that you see on buildings or whatever um, and so like the, my whole sort of encounter with him was him sort of trying to in a way like literally sell me one of these bunkers um, so his approach to our encounter was like I'm going to get this guy I'm going to reel him in somehow I'm going to find his like weak points I'm going to find the location of his apocalyptic anxiety and I'm going to, 
you know, sell him and by, you know, uh, you know, in consequence, sell his readers the idea of this compound and the idea of like, you know, the apocalypse that might make it necessary. Uh, and so the whole thing was just him like stoking my anxieties and saying, that's great, you? isn't it? Yeah. The, the apocalypse is marketing opportunity. I've got an angle. It's the end of the world. This is yeah. so interesting to me because I feel like in the 70s, so many people set up co-ops co and communes and it's not completely dissimilar, but the root of it is so hopeful and the root of it is appealing to people's better natures. And now it's like everyone's like, well, obviously everyone else, you know, it's, it's almost inbuilt into the culture, this negativity about human beings and about what should happen like it, it's so funny to me that it's like flipped you know i mean in a way that's like that's, that's what I'm, like that's what i'm trying to get at in the book is like this conflict like the apocalypse is interesting to me largely because of the way in which it reveals uh sort of pre-existing ideological fault lines or whatever so like the way that people the way that people like myself included and probably you think about the apocalypse actually reveals how we think about the world in a way. So like I, in the book, I write a lot about people whose vision of the end times, for want of a better term, involves like the collapse of civilization. And what when they think about the apocalypse, they think about just hordes of savages. Like, you know, and they have this idea of human nature that I'm really interested in, which is like people are basically just animals. And but also, it's, they never think that of them. They're always like, but not me. Oh, yeah, no, it's like the elect. And this is why it goes back to sort of a religious sensibility yeah. as well. It's like there's going to be a small number of the elect. It's quite a sort of Calvinist idea in some ways. Yeah. There's going to be a small number of like the prepared and the elect, and they're going to be like pitted against the savages outside. And that's a really political idea. That's super right wing. Um, and so the, like, the sort of idea at the heart of the book, in a way, is like the conflict between a communitarian vision of how you deal with crisis like you're talking about those 70s compounds and stuff, or compounds, uh, communities, uh, versus like the right-wing sort of like fortified compound. And it's not like it's, it's the sort of the ideological kind of conflict in microcosm. Josie, I'm going to have to stop you there because we have run out of time. No, 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 because we, we've got to do a load of free Albert Hall, so we have no more time. We were meant to finish this at 11 o'clock and it's 10 past. So well, um, say, reflects inequality. Because if there is if there a tiny is proportion of people who are very wealthy now, it reflects our society. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Mark's, Mark's book is yeah. uh, Notes from an Apocalypse is available now and you should uh, if you can uh, a lot of independent bookshops go and go and find out about the independent bookshops that are still uh, selling books ordering books and delivering books to people uh, because uh, all of them they, they really need your help as much as possible now sorry we had to cut that that short uh, but uh, we are going to end today uh, on another poem from Arlo Parks just to remind you we've got a new uh, Patreon account please go and look at that if you can uh, Mark thank you so much for uh, I, I want to talk about we I knew we'd have no time to get back to transhumanism. I thought we'd better make sure we're on your current book, but that is a fantastic book as well. Um, Josie, 8.30 tonight, you're going to be uh, doing your show. my show live. Um, um, yeah, yeah, trying to make it as best a uh, live experience as I can. Come along, come and type ha 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 in the Twitch chat box so that I feel less weird doing it. Brilliant. And uh, so here's, uh, we're going to end with Arlo Parks. And as I said before, uh, you can find all of the stuff at arloparksofficial.com. Thanks very much for watching. We're back tomorrow with Mark Gatiss, uh, David McCallman, and uh, Natalie Haynes. And oh, man, there's loads of stuff. Be great. So, so that's the, the final one of our uh, daytime morning shows. Thanks, Mark. Bye. Thanks a lot.
This poem is a poem that inspired my newest single, Black Dog. It's a poem about having someone you love go through a very difficult time in their heads and feeling helpless and not knowing how to lift them out of that place. I only came out a few days ago and it's had a beautiful response. It's managed to connect with people. So here's the poem that inspired that song. You promised you'd be there in the morning and I only half believed you because the last time you said that you almost weren't. I should have forgotten that by now, but I remember. There has always been a part of you, some little agony, smooth, hot and painful, something that I could not touch. I hear the smile in your voice today, though. This loose, dark string of dark red silk, so soft, faint and rare. Where did it come from? For months, it seemed the curtains were always closed. It seemed like you were always angry at me and tired of yourself. It seemed like you wouldn't survive this. Ignoring the jewel of hope behind my right eye. Rolling over onto your side to crush a tear with the side of your wrist like a tiny blue flower. We were all so scared. So that was the poem that inspired Black Dog. Um, for me, whenever I read that out, it acts as a reminder to take care of the ones you love and to check in on people. Uh, even your happy friends, even the people that seem content, can often be going through very dark moments. I wrote a poem about happiness as well, um, inspired by poems by Jordan Stevens, one of my good friends. Um, so it goes like this. Happiness is the garnet stone in her bracelet, an elbow through the skin of pool water. Happiness was a line, a hand, two eyes, spidery lashed and full of tequila. Happiness is everything you could never get enough of. Why couldn't you just let things sit? Always hungry for instinct, immediacy, a vacuum of patience. Stew in your juices, cry until you're finished. Drink slowly, move fast. Happiness will come when she's ready. Twin sister of joy. Full and gold and always next door. Grief spins in the bowl of your belly. When something inside starts to scream, remember. Two kisses and one camera. Four hands and six tattoos. You felt happy and lucky. Saw stars every night for two weeks. That was a poem about happiness. I think it's important to think about gratitude in this time. Think about what makes you happy. Keep tabs on people, situations, songs, art that makes you feel full and alive. That's what I've been doing. Uh, the last poem that I'm gonna read for you guys is a poem about magic. Um, I was asked to write a poem trying to convince someone who didn't believe in magic that it did exist. So I wrote a list of things that to me are magical. Thank you very much for listening to me. It's been a pleasure. I'm Arlo Parks. A flower shattered and dark red at the bottom of a pocket. A kiss quick and bright between the shoulder blades. The perfect white Russian sipped in the blurred gloom of a not so promising bar. The brilliant corners of a mind in pain. A stranger not quite understanding, but taking the time to listen. A child offering up 
a cherry to me, face entirely full of light in the dying hours of Market Sunday, dancing in kitchens, bathrooms, streets, to any jazz at all, finding something small and sacred that makes you kinder to yourself after all these years of not being so kind. Tears of joy flowering at the eyelids, pale blue eyes and special trees, the words I love you being followed by the tender solid of I love you too. How can you tell me that you don't believe in magic now? This has been a beautiful experience. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I hope you managed to glean something from the pieces that I read out and I hope everyone's doing all right. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget cosmicshambles.com slash stay at home to catch up on all the previous episodes, find out who's coming up on upcoming episodes and to leave a tip for acts and artists and venues who are hit hardest at the moment. And if you'd like to support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. Oh.